are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists of all types and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. And today, my guest is Professor Maurizio Corbetta. After receiving his MD from the University of Pavia in Italy, he did a residency in neurology at the University of Verona. In 1990, he moved to the U.S., carrying out a fellowship in neuroimaging at Barnes Hospital at WashU in St. Louis. While in St. Louis, he worked his way up over the years to become the Norman J. Strupp Professor of Neurology at WashU, as well as the Washington University School of Medicine. He is, was also the Director of Stroke and Brain Injury Rehabilitation at the Rehabilitation Institute of St. Louis. In 2016, Maurizio moved back to Italy, where he's full professor and chair of neurology in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Padua. He's also the founding director of the new Padua Neuroscience Center, a highly interdisciplinary research program centered on the idea of brain networks in health and society. He still has maintained his ties to WashU and, and has adjunct uh, faculty positions there. Professor Crepetta has pioneered experiments on neural mechanisms of human attention using positron emission tomography. That was way back even before fMRI. He has elucidated two brain networks dedicated to attention to control, the dorsal and ventral attention networks, and developed a brain model of attention. His clinical work has focused on physiologic correlates of focal injury. He's also developed a pathogenetic model of the syndrome of hemispatial neglect. He's currently developing novel methods for studying the functional organization of the brain using functional connectivity MRI, magnetoencephalography, and electrocorticography. He is a proponent of understanding trauma from a network disruption perspective and is hopeful for the utility of advanced and guided neuromodulation approaches for therapy. So in the field of brain mapping, Maurizio is known for his high level of rigor and his very deep insight that's associated with all of his research. He has over 16 papers with over a thousand citations. And even one of his early papers has over 10,000 citations. So he's, he's well-cited and well-respected in the field. So in our conversation, we start by discussing some of the key people that influenced him early in his career, the incredible team of people at WashU, the atmosphere at the time that he was there, as well as some of his early work. We also discuss his perspective on the utility of resting state fMRI, as well as a model that he's uh, proposed that describes like the fundamental purpose for resting state. So it's, an, it's a very provocative model that talks about, you know, what is resting state actually for in the brain? What is it actually doing? And this one proposes that it's uh, very fundamental. He's senior author, actually, of a recent paper called The Secret Life of Predictive Brains, What's Spontaneous Activity For?, uh, first author is Pizzullo. It's in Ticks in 2021. So I recommend you read that. It's one of the most provocative, compelling explanations that I've read for resting state activity. So we go on from there to discuss his perspective of the substantial importance and profound potential of systems level neuroimaging, not only to basic neuroscience, but also to clinical practice. It has a role and a, quite a significant role in actually understanding the brain and also uh, has real inroads to making clinical impact uh, 
uh, more so than it's even doing now. So enjoy. All right, Maurizio, welcome. Thank you for, for joining the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. Hi, Peter. How are you? Great. Great. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And, and I'd just like to start off a little bit. Uh, you know, I've known you, uh, you know, for at least over a decade and a half. And I've known of your work earlier. And being in Leslie Ungeleiter's lab, uh, you know, a big part of it was studying attention. And when I first heard about your work, I thought I thought you were purely a vision neuroscientist, actually, based on on how highly Leslie spoke of you, and and uh, and only later that I learned, oh, you're a neurologist and and uh, um, and clinician as well. And so, just to start off, um, you you uh, started in 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 Italy and uh, in the University of Pavia. So early on, so what what actually, if there's any sort of initial influences that sort of set you on your trajectory of, of doing both clinical and basic neuroscience work. Um, is there anything that any particular teacher or course or anything like that, that, that inspired you? Well, so, you know, everybody has a history in his mind about, you know, how people got to where they are. So here's my, my story, I guess. So in Italy, we had this Lyceum, this high school, and in third year, it's five years rather than four, you start philosophy, and philosophy is they teach you everything from Greek philosophy all the way to 20th century philosophy in three years. And so at that point, I really kind of start getting interested in, you know, knowledge and what happened to, you know, why we think the way we are, where are we going, what are we doing, you know, all those big questions. And so I want to be a philosopher. So when I went to the university, I actually had my philosophy application in my hand. But then, you know, I was also says, well, maybe I should do something more helpful. Philosophy just, you know. So I went, eventually I went to medicine. And then in Pavia, uh, I started studying in neuroanatomy, which is the toughest part of anatomy because of um, this pathway. And I really loved it. And then, then I did neurophysiology and I also loved it. And then when I was third year, I went to Pisa. In Pisa, there is the Institute of Neurophysiology. Uh, Giuseppe Moruzzi, who was discoverer of the reticular formation, the arousal system was there, and other people like Rizzolatti and Berlucchi, yep. they were like this cadre of young, now kind of older neurophysiologists. So I met Moruzzi at Parkinson's disease, and he was going to the office every day. Wow. And so I went there as to do a rotation as a summer student, and so I got into visual neurophysiology with Berlucchi. And, and that's how my interest in kind of the brain started. Uh, I also remember this Lassen paper that you probably read in Scientific American 1979. Or yes. It <laughs> showed the first map of the brain, three-dimensional with xenon. And I thought that was, that was super cool. And, you know, and so then I did cat research for a bunch of years, like, you know, two, three years. But then I was tired of catching cats in the stabularium to to record and I started reading these papers from St. Louis about, you know, doing neurophysiology in people. And I said, wow, that's cool. And so Berlucchi wrote a letter to Mike Posner and Raykol. And so that's why I ended up in St. Louis basically as a student, as a, as a just as a, you know, one year after my graduation. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the more, more, more than you're, more than you're <laughs> expecting. <laughs> you ask the story, and I tell you the story. No, that's that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, actually, um, 
you know, it's funny. I would actually be interested to know how many people have sort of, you know, have seen that Lassen paper, for instance, and thought, oh, wow, this is great. I want to do this. I, I saw that too. I think when I was in grade school or high school and um, I was, I was blown away as well. And I think on some level it planted a seed in my mind that I want to do this. But, but I think now that I see medical students, it's a pretty common story, what I just told you. You know, many people now, they're telling me about Oliver Sacks books, you know. They read like, you know, the Oliver Sacks, and they got really fascinated with the brain. And uh, Zapolsky also is a big hit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, you get hooked on a book, and then you say, wow, that's cool, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So then, you know, Wash U was probably the, I can imagine, I mean, of, of all the places you could have gone, it was probably the best place uh, in, at that time uh, to, to get this training and, and actually go into both human brain uh, research and, and sort of bring it to clinical applications. I mean, you had all the people there. It's amazing how many people actually came out of WashU uh, uh, to influence the field and how much they were doing at the time, even with Rachel and Posner, as you, as you mentioned. So just, um, uh, just to get into, maybe we'll start just you know, talking a little bit about your older work and, and, you know, early on, I remember, you know, there was a paper that you had that's, and like I said, when I first moved to the laboratory brain cognition, um, uh, certainly a a big part of it was visual attention. It seems like you were pioneering that area for a while, at least, uh, or one of the pioneers, Uh, you know, your paper, (laughs) yeah, and I know this has been mentioned before, but your paper in the Journal of Neuroscience in 1991, I think it has something like, yeah, now it has something like 12,000 citations (laughs) and it was highly influential um so and and the idea behind it i mean it was a very elegant experiment and looking at single versus divided attention and and the role of uh various areas in attention switching so i don't know if the story so would you say that i mean certainly the work was was great at the time and it still has impact obviously um how has the story grown with that? Uh, how has the story become either more complex or more unified? And you know, I like the questions that came to my mind when I read the story is it is it is there a relationship, for instance, between attention switching and task switching? And are there are there ways of setting whether you're uh, distracted by external tasks versus internal and, and where is that control being done? And are the areas still the same in terms of uh, you know what's important? Um, yeah, maybe, you know, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> in this kind of interview, sometimes it's good to, because sometimes now, you know, it's been 30 years since we imaging kind of got started doing activation experiments. And now is, uh, you, you know, there is a certain, you know, in the last five years or 10 years, people are doing certain things, but I think it's good to, you know, and I think Mark Rabel is a great storyteller. He tells the story really well, but... You know, at that point was uh, when I got to St. Louis, Mike Posner actually had left. He was not there anymore. And so I started to work with Steve Peterson. And Steve was actually coming out of NIH because he worked with David Robinson on eye movement and attention. He had a very nice monkey paper on the pulvinar and attention. And Steve was really a neurophysiologist. And so I trained with Steve and uh, he was a great mentor, fantastic mentor. He was always like... Uh, uh, you know, it was always challenging you. And I think that for me was, but, you know, just to give an idea of what the mapping and the analysis were, I went to Kinko and I bought these little uh, stickers, you know, red, blue, and green stickers. And you probably remember we had these maps of the Talarac brain 
right? And then you had these coordinates coming out of a PDP-11 system that was printing out the coordinates in the Talarek system that had yeah. been actually visualized with the skull X-ray by Peter Fox and, and Joe Perlmutter. And we were injecting oxygen-15 labeled water, which was very hot. It was coming out of the cyclotron about, you know, 100 or 70 millicuries. And you had to wait and cool it, cool it off. And then we were injecting the subject. And then we were running out. Otherwise, we were getting all this radiation. And, um, and so the experiment was actually uh, a very important moment because it was, you know, was, was dangerous to stay all close to all this radiation. And so you really, before we were putting anybody in the scanner, we had this five cabinet with, uh, we had the thousand mask. We had this thermoplastic mask that we were putting on the scanner to keep people in the scanner. And, you know, and so people were very careful with radiation. Every week you were looking at your dosing, wow. how much you got. Sometimes you were sitting out for a week. So we had to wait for the radiation to come down. Yeah. And, um, and so before scanning anybody, now, now we're just throwing people in the scan and say, what's, you know, we were doing a lot of psychophysics. So that experiment, we actually did almost like three or six months of psychophysics yeah. to get the paradigm right and to get the effects right. And then we scanned only, I don't know, 14 subjects to get the results. And, and, um, yeah. and when Bob Desimon came to the lab to, to, to visit Steve, what I show him to show him these results were this map with the stickers. And so, you know, uh, shape was red and uh, motion was blue and <laughs> color was, was green. And so Bob was looking at this thing, Bob Desimon, who's, a, you know, one of the most foremost neurophysiologists, knowing very well, husband yes. of Leslie. And he was saying, well, this looks like V4 and this looks like NT in the macaque. And so, you know, and that's how you... So, I mean, it's a completely different world, right? I mean, just completely a different way to do mapping. But those experiments showed that the visual system could be modulated top-down by attention. And that was the first demonstration in humans that that was even possible. And in fact, it was the first demonstration in monkeys as well, because Bob had studied spatial attention. Yeah. But this was actually feature attention, color, shape, motion. Yeah. I think the story is not, I, I don't think it's changed that much in terms of the top-down modulation. Now we discovered there were these areas in the frontal and the parietal lobe that were the source of the, of the bias into the visual system. Okay. And there have been many other experiments showing face selectivity, place selectivity, all the Nancy Kenwisher category-specific areas can be modulated by attention. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's kind of how that experiment came about, basically. Okay, okay. Well, I have to correct myself. It was the, your paper, so the one that had all the, the 12,000 citations is, is the, the one in Nature Reviews Neuroscience in 2002. That was the, that was the, the one, um, uh, control of goal-directed and stimulus-driven attention in, in the brain. So, and it does seem, so it's interesting because, and I imagine at WashU, everyone, once fMRI came along, there was no resistance to switching gears and, and going into starting fMRI. I mean, even though it was a, a major pet center, um, or maybe there was. Uh, <laughs> um, there was uh, a lot of resistance. Okay. Many, I mean, when the, when, well, when you're, you know, your war, well, first, you know, Jack, yeah. came out in science <clears throat> with that nice picture. And then, you know, 
than your work and other people's work. Uh, you know, WashU was very well committed to PET scanning. You know, they've been doing it for 20 years. Right. You know? uh, Pogosian had deal with Mike Phelps, the first PET scanner. So, I mean, they were actually into the machines. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of resistance. And, uh, and Mark Rako, I was in, uh, at that point, I was actually starting a residency because I was done after four years of fellowship. I decided to take another residency in neurology. So was, I was out of the lab. But Mark Rako kind of put his foot down and he said, no, we got to switch to fMRI. Wow. And, uh, and the whole lab within like a year kind of converted all the activation stuff over to fMRI. So that was actually a very important decision that he made at that point. Mark is always kind of looking for consensus. He doesn't like to really be top down, but in that case, oh, no, no, we guys have to switch. Otherwise, we're going to stay behind. And so that was And it's interesting too, that, right. I mean, everyone has established their whole career in, in one modality and they realize quickly that right. it's, I mean, there's still things that Pat can do that are complementary yeah, that well, fMRI can't do. And it's coming back to actually all the metabolics and all the receptors. Yes. I mean, we're actually going back here in Padova because we're working a lot with this PET MRI system, which is really wonderful because you get metabolic maps, but you also get functional connectivity and DTI. And so there is a lot to do there in terms yeah. of finding the metabolic with the, you know, with the fMRI. Yeah, 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 no, actually, um... Right. I mean, there's, there's, and, and there might be some, some real insights into it. I mean, certainly fMRI can potentially indirectly get at some, you know, oxidative metabol- metabolism, but it's still nothing. I mean, neurotransmitter uptake as well is, is key. Okay. Um, and then of course, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Mark Rakel, uh, as far as then the next big revolution came when, you know, you know, after fMRI was established for about four or five years and suddenly brought Biswell discovered resting state, uh, fMRI, and certainly that dovetailed incredibly well with the, the work that Mark was doing with, uh, uh, with PET as well, and um, finding these, this default mode network that seemed like it was more metabolically active during rest, and it kind of tied together. Um, yeah, what was the atmosphere like that? I mean, I imagine that also generated a lot of excitement at, at WashU, um, as far as that's concerned. Um, in fact, you know, I mean, Gordon Schulman was the one that made the observation uh, and, the, and, the, and the reason why that meta-analysis was made. So at that point, we had done about 10 to 15 experiments of different kinds of task activation with PET. So we had done language, Steve, original paper, Randy Buckner had published his first memory paper. Uh, I had done some of the attention work. So there was, a, you know, Julie Fees had done some. So, I mean, we had about 150 subjects. Yeah, that it scanned. And Mike Posner and me and Schulman, we thought that if there was something, we were looking for the little man in the head. And this was the central executive that Tim Shelley had described. Tim had described this, you know, mechanism that was coordinating activity in the brain and providing task switching and all of that. So the basic, Gordon said, well, okay, if there is the little man in the head, if we put all the experiments together, we should find a common activation site, which is common across all the maps, language, memory, attention, motor, all of them. There must be someone that is common. <laughs> so when you went and look at the activation map, the task also, and this period was always task versus rest, task versus fixation or task versus eyes closed. 
So when he went to see to the positive side of this huge meta map of PET, 150 subjects, one on top of each other, there was nothing, it was empty. But on the, on the negative side, so rest greater than task, there was the 12 areas that were very consistent. It described the consistency across the experiments and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and the fact that this was a real system and Mark at that time had been making this observation about this, what he called the medium mystery parietal area, which was showing up as negative in some of these experiments. And then he went on to do this metabolic argument about, you know, why an area is up or down. And if it's down, that means that it's metabolically active at rest. So it's a default metabolic activity. There's also some FTG data supporting that because the hottest area in the FTG maps, one of the hottest areas is the precuneus, which is kind of the core area of the default map. Yeah. So anyway, so that's how the, you know, but I mean, it was total serendipity, really. I mean, you started as a search for the little man in the head, <laughs> central executive, and he ended up finding the default mode network. So that's also a great story that I'm not sure it's well known, but that's yeah. how it kind of came about, really. Uh, and the environment was, uh, you know, we had, we had a couple of things that were really helpful. And I think I've been trying to do this in Padua. We, and at some point we stopped doing it in St. Louis and I think it was a shame. I mean, we had this Friday, more, Friday one o'clock meetings in which we had everybody there. And all the protocols in the lab, particularly for this radioactivity issue, <clears throat> were actually heavily screened. And so you had like, you know, Avi Snyder and Mark and Steve Peters and Joe Permander and Peter Fox and Mark Minton, they're all there criticizing the protocol that was being presented. Wow, that's great. And so you basically get all your reviews even before you did the experiment, right? And so as a, as a student, it was terrifying because you were <laughs> going there and they were eating your life, right? But the point is, you, you know, you really did experiments that have been vexed very heavily by people that really know what they, what, what, you know, what the problems might be. And so I think that's a really great tool. And so there was a lot of discussion and the students were all together in the same open space. And I think that's also allowed people like Mike Fox to talk to Damien Fair. You know, I mean, people yeah. just, you know, Dozenbach was talking with, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of interaction that way. So I think those two elements is, is really important. Rather than seeing little lab in silos was a lot of open circulation. That's a that's a great idea. I mean, I, I mean, I think other labs do that, but right, having a formal, you know, sort of pick apart for someone's experiment before they they spend all this time and and yeah. money and resources to actually do it is is really nice. I think, yeah, and especially you had a critical mass of people though that were 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 the best in the world, and that was that was unique. That it still is unique there there, and also I'm sure you're growing a group like that at Pano as well. But it's not it's not easy to replicate because I mean there is an historical knowledge about the signals and so you know i mean that right there was a critical mass of people thinking different ways to the same problem and i think that was very important yeah and it's also interesting that you mentioned about the um default mode network as far as you know it's the whole idea of how science progresses where you have you know you have one question you know it's it's pretty much how you you know how you reframe your questions really that that it progresses and so, you know, you're looking for, as you mentioned, you're looking for the, the little man, the controller, uh, and, and then you find something else and, and you have to sort of step back and reevaluate the, the model 
uh, in which you're generating your questions. And, and still, and I, I know Randy Buckner has picked up on the default mode network, and there's been a lot of studies on the default mode network, but it's still uh, the, the purpose or the, uh, the functional role it plays is still not crystal clear to me, at least. Uh, it's, you know, some, some think it's more of an introspection uh, and once again, it's also limited by our terms. I mean, in, what is introspection? You kind of know what it means behaviorally, but is that really describing what's actually happening in that regard? So, I, I, I think that I mean, uh, I think that's one of the ways we're, we're going to go forward. I mean, this is something that you know. I mean, we've been mapping William James, you know, eighteen ninety onto the brain. Right. Yep. I mean, the way William James dropped those chapters and he talked about perception, attention, memory. Yep. You know, it was just, you know, it was just in, in, it was his introspection that there were these categories, but we used them and we map them onto the brain. Now I think they work like, uh, you know, like Paul Russ, Russ Paul Drack or uh, Tarconi. I mean, Yale. I mean, the mapping back, I think, is the ontology of. You know, the brain mapping it onto the behavior, I think is very important. And, and I think one of the themes that, you know, I'm really excited is this low dimensionality of behavior. I think psychology through this illusion that you got all these processes as I think led us on a, a little bit astray in terms of analyzing brain behavior relationship, because now there are so many processes that it doesn't make any sense, right? You have the task switching area, the theory of mind area, they got all these dissections. And, and instead, of course, it's much more, it's much coherent and it's much more low dimensional, I think. Yeah. Um, and in, you know, in the frontal lobe, task switching, task maintenance, and the response inhibition, yeah, they're not three processes, they're correlated 80%. And so you have something that does all three. And I think that idea of, try to reduce the complexity, I think is very important moving forward, I think. Yeah, and it seems that's right. I mean, you should be, I mean, I like how you, uh, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, where you you start out with all these all these battery of tasks um, of behavior and, and they do group uh, in some sort of low dimensional space. And it seems that, uh, right, the, the activation patterns, the connectivity patterns that are associated with deficits of those is, is somewhat, low dimensional as well. Does that mean, I mean, it, it means that it, maybe it suggests that there's principles of brain organization that are obtainable by, by some sort of, it's not just a million different controls or rules, but it's more a, a low dimensional sort of idea space and, and uh, uh, that you, that, and I wonder if like, for instance, going to higher resolution, I mean, certainly will give you more information uh, but you might be able to get patterns of activation that explain pretty well. I mean, so you've been explaining pretty well behavior with activation patterns, but I mean, where do you think the limit is? Do you think that the answer is in sort of collapsing it in these low dimensional spaces? You know, when we were doing, and I mean, all the task activation, um, I mean, all the task activation program, okay, starting with PET on the way to, I mean, it's really predicated on the idea that the brain is a sensory motor analyzer, that you have, you know, this is the old Jubel and Wiesel idea that Moncastle and all the neurophysiologists 
And people, you know, really smart like Shadlin and Newsom, you know, people that think that, you know, you have this sensory motor flow, they start from the sensory system, go to the motor system, decision-making, all of that. And, and I think that's probably true to some extent, but I think what this spontaneous activity is showing us that there is a lot of things that are prepackaged for us. And so I think some of the high dimensionality comes to this idea. So you have all these spots of activation depending on the specific task, but we know that those are really tiny changes over this massive uh, fluctuation. They're much simpler. And I think people are seeing this in single unit, where if you go and record from before, you're gonna find color specific neurons. And, you know, and, and, and the problem with single neurons is that how, how the brain can code all these spaces? Well, Dorit Sao came along and she said, okay, well, let's record from 10,000 neurons in phase specific region. And now three orthogonal latent variables can explain 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Yes. And I think this low dimensionality, hidden variable explaining a lot of variability has been found in the visual system, has been found in the motor cortex, and it's going to be found in the cognitive system too. So I think that's where we're going. We need to understand that the complexity of, of behavior can actually come out of relatively simple variable like DNA. You've got four bases and you can code for all the genes that you can, so all these four bases. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point that you bring. I mean, that you bring out is because I mean, you know, some of the drive is to sort of you know record every neuron in the brain and you know just get down to more and more fine detail. And certainly, there's information there, but but it's interesting question as to what scale, temporal or spatial scale, uh, the you know the 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 principles might be best derived. Is there a sweet spot of 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 explaining? or understanding, explaining behavior, understanding the brain that, I mean, you certainly want to understand it across all scales, but focusing at the neuronal level and the neuronal collections might be useful, but it seems that at the systems level, uh, there's a lot of information to still be derived as far as that's concerned. Yes. And, and so that just leads right into, you know, there's a paper I, I read about, I don't know, came out about a year ago, or maybe a little bit less than a year ago, that really caught my mind because uh, caught my attention because, um, uh, you know, ever since, you know, resting state was discovered, people are wondering, you know, I mean, not only default mode network, but all, all resting state, uh, all, and, you know, it seems like it matches up with areas that show activation and, but everyone wondered, you know, what is this for? What, why do we have, uh, this spontaneous activity that's constantly going on? Uh, that's similar in activity as just with activation, but it's it's more, you know, it undulates. And you had a great paper that I recommend that everyone read this paper, The Secret Life of Predictive Brains. Uh, what's spontaneous activity for with the first author is Pizzullo in, in ticks in, in 2021. I thought this was great because it, wanted, it was one of the most compelling ideas for uh, the purpose of, of resting state. And, um, uh, and I don't know if you want to mention... Uh, you could probably better describe the paper than I can, but I thought it was it was a nice way of talking about sort of what you know what the brain is doing to either constantly basically the brain is a creates models of the world, and when we perceive the world, we sort of update those models. But then there's all all this sort of priming or or of parsing of and refining of these models that's that's going on. But 
But why don't you describe it better than I do? <laughs> well, uh, thank you for, uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you like it. I mean, I think if you, if you like it, I think, it, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've wrote it. I, I, we were able to write it because Giovanni Pezzullo is a computational neuroscientist. He worked with Carl Friston and his intubation models. He's also studying the hippocampus, which is a different system where spontaneous activity has been found. And also through the work of Buzaki and others, this activity uh, seems to have a function that is very interesting. The activity in the hippocampus is, uh, is not only um, describes certain uh, aspects of, uh, you know, of, the, of the environment, like the work of Moser got the Nobel Prize for that, space maps. But particularly, it's interesting that at night or even before the mouse is running the maze, there are these pre-play or replay sequences. So the neurons are refiring exactly in the same sequence as the, mouse, as the maze. Now, if the mouse has run the maze, I think that makes sense because maybe at night, the mouse is consolidating memory. And I think that's an idea that is in the literature. But what is surprising, there are these pre-play and the pre-play, the mouse has never seen the maze. And yet the neurons are firing in a certain way that is very similar to what and, and that idea kind of um, fits, I think, with the experience that all of us have, that although you had never been, you know, we never had in this situation before. I mean, I never seen your office at home and you never seen this conference room. But before even we started this conversation, we had strong priors about what your office is going to look like and what you, where you might find me, right? And, 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 and the other thing that always struck me when I'm at lectures, I'm lecturing or I'm giving a talk or you know, even a discussion, and people are listening, um, basically there are always three or four poses that people put their hands, right? People, they're either do this or they're doing this or they're doing this. You know, I mean, there are thousands of possible ways that you can move your hand and stay on the chair. You know, you can do this, you can do that. But, but the constraint is such that people go to a low dimensional space of motor postures, okay? And so there is a low dimensional space of expectation about visual environments, the same in the motor system. And I think the same, I think, in cognition, because if we ask people to recall a movie and you ask 100 people to recall movies, you will find that people recall in a certain order. They have a certain structure in their head on how to recall. And now we're doing these experiments on eye movement and we find that hundreds of people looking at hundreds of pictures, we can explain variability, 70% of variability with three components. So even across people, there is low dimensionality. Yeah. And what is most surprising is that this component, you see that not only when people are looking at scenes, but even when they're in front of a blank screen. Yeah. So you can pick up people based on their intrinsic dynamics and see that the same dynamics are at work when people are actually exploring a visual scene. Now, which is a completely different way of thinking from the bottom-up sensory driven is more like, and now Buzaki has this great book that calls the brain inside out or outside in. Yes, yes. And I think we have studied the brain outside in, but now we need to start the brain inside out. And I think yeah. that's the perspective that the resting state is somehow because of all the reasons that you mentioned, the fact that it consumes the most energy in the brain, the fact that it's matching task-related patterns, the fact that it's behaviorally relevant, the fact that it can account behavioral deficits in individual variability, 
The rest instead begins a scaffolding of our expectation that we build with experience and development. And of course, it's a low dimensional space that adjusts to the evidence that is coming in, but it provides you with the best guess about what might be coming in, in a way. That's the idea. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so this idea of Bayesian is not just predicting doing a task, what might happen, but actually when there is no task, the brain continues to predict and continues to generate possible solution to optimize what might be coming in. And I think yeah. that's kind of, in, in, a, in a nutshell, that's kind of what we try to say about the resting state. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really compelling hypothesis, and and it really does tie in with the idea that you know to have these to have these constantly sort of refined models um, certainly and, and also to opt, optimally respond to to the environment. It seems like you have to have this constant process going on, and and certainly um, uh, uh, you know it's it's. And obviously, a lot of that goes on. Most of it probably goes on beneath our conscious awareness. We've been, you know, I have a postdoc who's actually trying to look at resting state, and then actually trying to get a sense of what their conscious state is, uh, to see if we can maybe at least get part of the tip of the iceberg of you know what parts of you know even wandering thought could be sort of like the tip of the iceberg of what's going on uh, uh, everywhere in this regard. And it's it really does resonate with me in that regard. Um, and, and you mentioned that actually a really important thing, whereas the statistics, I mean, just looking at neural spontaneous neuron firing, you know, this, the statistics of the firing don't change between task and, and this resting state, uh, which is compelling as well. Um, what do you think ultimately does, I mean, then the question is sort of what, is it sort of just this, this, echo resonating chamber that um, is just uh, constantly going and is in the, the bottom, the, the, the initial driver is just simply the, at some level, it has to be some, you know, the, the noise of, of spontaneous firing of neurons that somehow generate into these patterns of low dimensional patterns is, um, so yeah, is the, is the, is the driver noise uh, at some level, the spontaneous neuron firing, or is it somehow just uh, driven by maybe outside stimuli that sort of then generate this? I, I, I think the driver is, uh, well, I think that, you know, this, uh, this old brain modeling that people like Randy McIntosh and Gustavo Deco and Victor Gears are working with, you know, the virtual brain type yes. thing. I mean, one of the most, I think, interesting insight from that work <clears throat> is that you know, you take a connectivity pattern of a human brain or a monkey brain or a rat brain, and you know, these are macro connections. These are not the small connections. These are the big ones, right, that you see with DTI. And now you hook up random neuronal activity generator, which can be single firing or local field potential or oscillators, but randomly at all this location. And then you let the model run and the model magically, in my view, develops this fluctuation and multiple temporal scale that are all embedded into each other. So the fast are embedded into the slow and the slow at the group level resemble kind of the resting state network. So I think the connectivity is, is a big part of it. And then maybe there are these modulatory drive, maybe from the brainstem, maybe 
the thing that affects the global signal or you know other other you know influences that can change the tone. The other thing that I think is very important that we sometimes we forget um, is the body. Okay, I think the body got to have, we need to start, I think in my view, we need to start the brain and the body together. And we're not doing enough of that. We studied the brain like it was in a bag and it's disconnected from the rest of the body. Now, the, the, the vagus nerve that takes all the input into the brain is kind of small actually. It's only about you know, a few hundred thousand nerve fibers going up. But the enteric system, the nervous system, the neurons in the gut is more than the neurons in the brain. And so there must be, uh, you know, so now here, for instance, we're doing one experiment that hopefully we're going to be publishing, but we've been looking at people in the ICU, right? And how they wake up after a trauma. And the question is, does the brain wakes up first or is the body that wakes up first? Because the body got these rhythms. You got liver rhythms, protein metabolism, the gut has its own rhythm, the heart has its own rhythm. And so the question is, are these two things linked? And they must be linked because the brain controls the body and the body controls the brain. And so one of the surprising findings is that we have very interesting peripheral signals like platelets and inflammation and the gut, for instance, the emptying of the stomach in the ICU that is actually correlated to the way you wake up after a few days, as if there is this real, so I mean, this brain-body axis got to be really important. I think we need to start thinking that the brain is a map of the environment, but the map, brain mostly has a strong map of the internal body and the body external and internal. And I think that is also part of the representation that we're holding in the resting state. Okay. And I think there is some really nice work by uh, Talon Baudry, and she had this gastric, you know, 0.1 hertz yes. fluctuation in the gut that you know nicely show correlation and they also work on the heart. I mean, so I think that's a whole area of the psychophysiology brain body that got to be really interesting for the future. Yeah, there's some other work uh, I think coming out of Hopkins with with Chimpicar and other people. Just you know, they're just starting to right measure rhythms of the gut and and just at the very early stages of saying, oh, there's there's some correlation with, and and yeah, I mean there could be some. As you mentioned, some 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 deep resonances between between that, um, as far as that's concerned. And we just got actually we just our lab just got a vagal nerve simulator, and we're going to start working with resting state, uh, uh, and also with uh, blood pressure, continuous blood pressure monitoring in the scanner as well to try to that's further. That's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and so there's more to be done, and and it's interesting. You know, one other thing that your paper. Uh, sort of made me start to think about is, you know, we're starting to go to, you know, at seven Tesla, we can get, you know, layer resolution. Um, and I wonder if, uh, you, know, it's, you know, there's the basic models of, you know, super granular, infragranular layers sort of having output versus input. And that's very much related to you know, even some of your work with um, uh, looking at, uh, you know, uh, high frequency electrical signals, either beta or gamma frequencies, either suggesting output versus input. And I wonder if, you know, looking at resting state, you might be able to, to have a more complete story looking at the relative, you know, upper versus lower layer activity at resting state. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting just to... Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we're also trying to get a seven Tesla in Padua. So uh, <laughs> we're actually in the midst of, you know, uh, finishing our fundraising and hopefully we're going to get one. Okay. Uh, 
I was going for a good three Tesla, like a Connecto three Tesla. But yeah, yeah. Well, we had three Tesla already. You know, the rector said, "Well, we have to get a seven Tesla." <laughs> so, okay, well, we get a seven Tesla then. Well, there- and, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I don't know. I never work at seven Tesla. You know, you, you're a physicist, and you know that the old generation seven Tesla were high maintenance from a physics perspective. Wash you, we never got a seven Tesla. We made a commitment not to get it because we didn't have the physics infrastructure like you guys in Minnesota and other places. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and now the new scanners, maybe they're easier. They're more like, um, uh, you know, yeah. you can do clinical work as well, which I think it helps for a hospital uh, for paying the bills. And uh, so I think that's kind of, we're going to get one of these dual purpose clinical, maybe research so that you can do both. And hopefully it will not be as hard as it was a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, seven Tesla is is actually getting a lot easier. You don't need a team of physicists. And um, yeah, it's, it's almost like... I would call you if I had a problem. Okay, yeah, call us up. We'll, we'll do what we can. As long as it's, uh, you know, um, I think... Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think I think most it's it's nice too that that um, there's a community of seven Tesla users who, who sort of share code and things like that through you know through the vendors and so it's it's kind of nice in that regard but yeah it's worth it it's worth it uh, without a doubt I think especially for this you know trying to and also right we're pushed we're trying to figure out layer uh, make sense of layer fMRI and, and it's not even clear whether it will fully pan out, but it's looking looking good so far. But I think the spectroscopy is also very interesting. Some of the some of the biochemistry that you can do. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 Right. With the sensitivity, um, certainly you have more sensitivity and you have more separation of these peaks that you can actually make more statements about them. Um, so so uh, uh, so just going beyond that, uh, I mean, you mentioned also, right? I mean, it seems that there's a whole story that you're building here uh, with, like you said, even with with um, uh, with visual exploration. It seems that that's very much tied in potentially with this. Even looking at a blank screen, your your visual exploration seems to, you know, change at a certain rate and go to certain areas that are that are very telling as far as uh, uh, your behavior is concerned. Um, and and I wonder if tying that in with resting state, there, there might be. I mean. It, it's interesting as a neurologist, you're always finding more potentially more, uh, you know, behavioral tests, and and seems like visual exploration is a perfect candidate in some regard uh, to that, and it does tie in, it seems to to resting state in this regard too. So yes, I think um, yeah, and, and it's a continuous task. I think we like it because people are working at it all the time. Yeah, it's not a task that you have like one second you're working and then you're sitting for three seconds idle for the next trial. So it's not a trial to trial, but it's a continuous. So it's very sensitive. We're using also degenerative condition like Alzheimer's and MCI to see whether we can pick up subtle changes that might suggest the declining cognitive function early on. And, uh, and there are some clear differences between normal and Alzheimer's patient, for instance. And uh, we're also looking at stroke as a potential for outcome. So, I mean, we're using it as a general tool to understand kind of spontaneous activity, kind of, yeah, not in a very uh, constrained test, but in more ecological uh, behavior. Yeah. Before I go on to the next part, just one question that always 
pops into my mind still the, the 0.1 hertz and also the visual explanation exploration seems like it's at you know uh, at these sort of slower rates maybe there's a continuum but and also that might tie in so like for instance looking at resting state fluctuations is the reason for that I mean, of course hemodynamics uh, but even uh, even looking beyond the hemodynamics it seems like 0.1 hertz is a predominant power even in electrophysiology and is that related in some sense do you think to just generally the rate of predominant rate that things change in the world. And so it's somehow tuned to that or? Well, I, I, I guess the envelope of behavior is definitely 0.1 Hertz. Now the specific events can be faster. So in yeah. speech, the, you know, speech is faster in terms of, but if you look at the envelope then, so it might be that the fluctuation are reflecting some kind of a general spatial temporal I don't know, structured, and then you might have more specific coding at fast, faster frequencies, yes. which maybe we don't see with, with imaging. And that's where, you know, having different kinds of methods may be very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, so, so, um, so I just wanted to get in a little bit to, uh, you know, there was a prominent neurologist in the field uh, who doesn't do fMRI. Um, Dimitri Kuhlman, who, you know, from some years ago or about maybe a year ago, wrote a, an editorial sort of uh, essentially sort of suggesting that, um, that because fMRI sort of looks at a secondary effect with blood flow and, and, and it's sort of at a coarse scale, uh, you know, it has limited clinical, potentially clinical impact and um, uh, limited ability to really explain mechanisms of, of neuroactivity. And... I'm kind of curious as a, as another neurologist, uh, what your, what your, pers I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, what, what your perspective of that is, I, you know, we certainly had a, you know, I had a great conversation with Dimitri afterwards. And, um, but I think that it, I think that it's great to make clear from your perspective, what the, what the impact of fMRI could be. Yeah. I also read that editorial and, um, <clears throat> I mean, I thought it was a bit uh, extreme. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I think maybe the question, more general question is what brain imaging, first of all, is brain imaging, I mean, fMRI, but the whole activation and kind of the human imaging, has it taught us anything about neuroscience or about brain organization? I think that would be my first question. And, uh, and I think when, you know, throughout the last 30 years, I think it's good to always to go back at the beginning a little bit. Because we thought, you know, when people were recording for monkeys in MT, and you found these neurons that were explaining behavior, or there was some choice probability associated with behavioral decisions, you know, some pretty prominent neurophysiologists said that behavior can be explained by a single neuron, right? Now, the first ever PET scan activation showed that pushing a button to a light the simplest possible task, drives 20, 30, 40, the whole brain gets changed by that. So to me, that is fundamental. I mean, before we thought that this was a, a job for a few neurons in key strategic area, in a key circuit, superior colliculus, MT, MST, frontal eye field. But now we know that the whole brain is changing for any task, right? And so that is really the contribution of imaging. And now finally, the neurophysiologists open their amplifiers, 
they stop in the EEG, they're not cutting at one hertz or a thousand hertz like spikes. They're going down to the low frequencies. And I think that's a huge contribution that imaging and brain imaging has done to neuroscience. Because now people are recording from a thousand neurons and finding very low fluctuation, very similar to both. And Mark Raper has been very vocal about that. And I think he's absolutely right that there is a high frequency story, spikes, and there is a low frequency story. And the two stories are equally important. Metabolically, yes. the low frequency is much more important than the high frequency. There is no question about that. Yeah. But in human, in human disease, is, I think it's the same idea, basically. Now, I can give you one example from what we've been studying. Okay, stroke. Stroke, um, you know, the, if you could Google stroke, you find a map of the brain with a lesion in the cortex. Okay, and all the animal model of stroke are cortical models. Okay, and you know, people have studied stroke in animals for 20 years, making lesion in motor cortex. Now, the first MRI map of 100 stroke patients, one on top of each other in an atlas space, showed that most stroke are subcortical. Yeah. And the problem is the disconnection in the cortex, and you have this connectivity problem. Now, that could never be discovered by any kind of physiological you know, method, if not a whole brain recording method, okay? Right. And the same is with this the dementia. In dementia, people have thought that, you know, when, when, I, when I went to WashU after I finished my residency, I made a big the biggest mistake of my life. I went to John Morris, who's the head of the Alzheimer's Center at Washington. I was like, I was like just off of presidency. I was a junior assistant professor. And I had this track record of imaging. And he said, Maurizio, come and work with the Alzheimer's Center. I want you to study Alzheimer's disease. I said, John, it's not, it's not that specific. It's not that interesting. I'm interested in the brain and focal disorder. I'm going to study stroke. But now we discovered through imaging that different kinds of dementias are disease of different networks with different neurons, different connections. So Randy and Mark Minton, they show that the default mode network is one of the early seeds of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Frontotemporal dementia is a problem of the singular percular. I mean, this is a huge contribution. So how can you say right. that it is not, you know, so I mean, those two examples to me are paradigmatic of the fact that imaging. Now, there is a third reason, which I think is very important, is that and I'm, as you see, I'm passionate about this because here I'm finding Padova is a great place and there is a lot of great uh, neurobiology, great basic science. And they look at the systems neuroscience agenda a bit in a snotty way. Says, well, what are you gonna, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You know, what are you gonna teach us about? I mean, but, you know, if you study a mouse model of Alzheimer's, Parkinson, ALS, whatever, and you find a protein that is abnormal, and you jump straight to a clinical trial, you will fail. Yeah. And people have failed for 20 years doing animal models, jumping too many levels. We need to find out if the imaging, the whole brain recordings in a mouse that has Alzheimer's look like the default mode network in Alzheimer's patients in humans. We want yes. to make sure that the networks are the same. Yeah. So the intermediate phenotypes are so important. And so you cannot jump from genomics to disease you got to go through the exercise of using inter and I think the connectivity is a great phenotype. It is an intermediate phenotype that is related to the gene, is related to the proteins, is related to the low level stuff, but it's also connected with the clinic. 
Yeah. And so to me, those are the main arguments for why imaging remains a very fundamental technique to understand. Now, in, in Italy now, there is going to be, we just closed this very large set of facilities, infrastructure that are building. And the first facility is, is called genomics. Then you have proteomics, metabolomics, single cellomics, structural proteins, single cell imaging, animal imaging, human imaging, cell wow. testing. Wow. The whole, the whole continuum must be there if you need to understand anything. Yes. And I think that's where we need to go. We need to have the whole continuum and, and, and we need to keep start trying to get, you know, what's going across the levels. That's... And sometimes you can jump from a single gene disease you know, maybe you can jump to a cure, you know, you manipulate the genome and then maybe you fix the disease. But for most common diseases, diabetes, hypertension, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, they're all schizophrenia, they're all polygenetic disease. And yeah. so you need to understand the intermediate phenotypes. I think that's the main reason why we need to do this for the future. Yeah, and, and different diseases might have different spectrum of, of intermediate phenotypes. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it might be, you know, you don't know ahead of time actually intervening at what scale uh, would, would be most effective as, as well. And so, or intervening at what system. system Maybe level. we should write an editorial in brain, two of us. Yeah, yeah, no, reply, I like that. Reply to Dimitri. <laughs> yes, yeah. And yeah, there's been there's been some talk on, right, I mean, at least writing something about defending fMRI, but also sort of more having more proactive, right, uh, sort of talking about uh, uh, why it's important to, to, to assess across, across scales and across systems. Um, yeah, because we don't know. Uh, and I think it's nice that you have, you know, I think one, one argument is that, you know, if that's, you know, when you're manipulating genetics or, or proteomics or um, either single cells, you have a very controlled sort of, uh, yeah. you, you can see it very easily and you can, you can work with it. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it's not, you don't get the, 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 the dynamics, uh, uh, the wider dynamics. So, and the wider interactions as far as that's concerned so and, and yeah and there, is, and there is a cultural problem because we need to understand more about genomics and you know and, and, and proteomics and people that are doing this you know the, the cellular work they need to kind of scale it up a little bit i mean it's they're really different communities and and and, and there is very little communication culturally between the two. So I think that's that's another challenge. Yeah, I think that's key, sort of fostering this communication between the between the, the groups. Um, okay, okay. So I think definitely, and I think that there's been enough, uh, you know, pushback at all levels that it actually was a nice catalyst in some sense to, you know, focus people on, on what truly is the benefit of fMRI and at this scale um, as well. You know, it's interesting too. I mean, this even even you know, I work with a friend of mine who who actually is just doing pure network modeling. And like you said, there's there's even specific network models that predict, uh, you know, various frequencies and and that you can measure with EEG. And 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 it would it's really interesting experiments that can that can go between the two of, you know, even very low level, even theoretical neuroscience to to looking at resting state fluctuations. So. Yeah. Just to uh, starting getting towards the end, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned, you know, probably what you're probably, I'm guessing, spending a, a lot of your time on, and that is 
you know, with stroke, for instance, um, trying to, uh, you know, uh, so you, working at WashU uh, and also at Padua, you, you've, uh, you've recently talked about this at OHPM where uh, you are, um, you know, comparing your stroke models to two different measures of connectivity, one with DTI and one with, uh, one with functional connectivity. And, um, you know, there's uh, interesting work that comes of that. One, as you mentioned, that um, interesting results that one sort of the strokes are subcortical and they, they disrupt connections. Uh, but it does seem that, um, uh, and also you, you, a really nice point that you brought out is that you, 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 you couch it in the terms of uh, a variance explained uh, by these measures, I think, as opposed to just correlation with. And I think the audience um, may not necessarily uh, clearly differentiate between the two. Could you explain first that, uh, as far as that's concerned? Like the difference between uh, variance explained uh, in a way of putting that versus just simply saying, oh, well, this correlates most with with this or this right. correlates this much with, with this, so. Well, the I mean, correlation is uh, you just put you know, two variables and you see they're related and I think it can be a regression you get correlation. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, these models that we use, they are machine learning models in which you basically develop an hypothesis about the contribution of say of lesion location on a sample. And uh, so you're trying to, through the lesion, you're trying to predict the behavioral score. So one axis is actually score predicted and the other axis is score observed. Yeah. And so you develop the model and then you test the model in independent subjects, okay? And so the, the subjects that are left out are, you know, you try to predict their score based on the model, say based on the lesion location, for instance. So, so the, and so that is, uh, and so if the model is doing a good job in predicting the score of the subject, then you have, you know, the variability that you're explaining is high. And I think that should be really, in my view, the gold standard now for brain behavior kind of relationship, because finding just a correlation, maybe with many subjects is not good enough for many reasons. Um, and, and you need to kind of go towards this. So we're doing this statistical model, either, um, Ridge regression for brain behavior relationship or partially square uh, regression for correlating two variables or partially square correlation to look at the covariance between two variables like structural function. You look at, you know, what is kind of a canonical correlation. You're looking at what is significantly common between the two. Yes. And I think that's a good way to look at kind of latent variable as well, because sometimes you find that you have a few latent variables that are explaining most of the variability. And now we don't know what are these latent variables, but you know, it's, it's, it's a statistical explanation. So we don't know whether there is a biological underlying correlate, but I mean, I think it's a nice way to explain the data in a way. And it's a good way to see if the data is relevant for clinical work, because, okay, if I have my next patient that I don't know anything about, I see his lesion and I can tell you what his score is gonna look like. And yeah. And how it helps in that, in that sense. So, so you mentioned, uh, so it does, so in your, in your talk at, at, in Rome, you mentioned um, the possibility of having a, you know, a, a, a thousand subject or 2000 subject map of, of uh, fiber tracks and a thousand or 2000 map of functional connectivity 
using, for instance, like a glass or model to parcelate or, or even comparing to that. Um, is that still, I mean, to, what are the limits of doing that? It seems that you mentioned, like, for instance, memory is very hard to, uh, memory loss, memory deficits, um, uh, if it's not in the hippocampus, for instance. I mean, if it's anywhere else, it's, it's hard to predict with the by lesions, by by lesions. lesions. But yeah, but you know, as they, but functional connectivity seems to predict you it. Do better. Yes. Um, is there some sort of principle by what, why those are different in that regard? Is it somehow, uh, is it somehow at the scale? Maybe it's, there's too much very, there's uh, uh, either memory is widely distributed or, or is there a certain um, detail that you can't get down to as far as, Making that differential diagnosis with a lesion. Yeah, so I mean that that kind of that program is going, you know, in, in, in one way now there is some data sets of about uh, 13, 1300 lesions, uh, and Michel Thibault de Schott and uh, he has published some work on that, looking at, at the pattern of disconnection of about a thousand lesions, and it turns out that with about thirty patterns, you explain about eighty percent of of the variability. So which is good news because, you know, I mean, you can, you know, you have a relatively small number of components that you can then, uh, <clears throat> and we're doing kind of similar thing on the imaging side to try to get, ideally you would like a lookup table, maybe like a tool where you put in your lesion and it shows you what is the most likely pattern of connectivity abnormalities and what is the most likely pattern of behavior and what is the trajectory of recovery of that patient? So, I mean, that would be one helpful tool that we can transfer to the clinic. Yes. Uh, I think the principle of, um, I think what we're observing is that there are, you know, if you think about the organization of, of the networks and you do like a graph, right? You have certain networks that are more peripheral, like the visual network or the motor network. And there are networks that are more central, like the frontoparietal or the singular percular in, in graph space. And, and those networks that are more peripheral are the ones that are connected with very big white matter pathways like the genicular calcarine tract into the visual system, the corticospinal tract out of the motor cortex. And so we think that lesions strategically located disconnecting the white matter, gray matter interaction will explain behavior better. Yeah. Now, if we go to central part of the network and you hit, you know, then I think there are more. There is more redundancy. There is more de degeneracy, if you wish, and so I think that's why the functional connectivity does a better job. Uh, and so I think it's just really a matter of uh, degeneracy of representation for memory versus vision or motor. They're very focal in their brain space, and I think that. So, so I think this kind of tool that we described would show that if you have. A lesion in the back of the brain. Now the variance explained by lesion might be sixty percent. The variance explained by functional connectivity only thirty percent. But if you have a lesion in the deep parietal white matter, then that variance accounted for may reverse. Yeah. And so people may look at different tools to try to predict what the patient is going to do. And then, of course, if we have this model, then what we are thinking is that then we can make a computer model of that. And then you can go into more principal way of stimulating the brain. Yep. Yep. And, and I think that's also the next step because right now TMS, TDCS have been all remade by kind of clinical 
approach and has not been very successful. If you look, there is this thing called Cochrane, which is like a, an English association that reviews all the clinical trials. And there is a recent Cochrane of TMS and it shows, well, it doesn't work. Well, yes, it doesn't work because it's been done clinically, I think. Yeah. But if we do it using more, you know, first principle of connectomics, I think it may work. Or you might need to go to multi-site, which is something that people are thinking about. You know, you need to hit the brain in different locations simultaneously to create those patterns that will eventually get the brain out of those low dynamic state into a higher dynamics, which corresponds to better processing. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, Michael Fox, for instance, is doing it in the, in the case of maybe psychiatric disorders, but also certainly in terms of therapy. Um, yeah, I think that, I think this would perfectly lend itself not only right for, for predicting behavior and, and natural recovery, but also, yeah, um, that's great that you're doing that, looking at neuromodulation uh, targets or trying to refine the targets, but that, also- that would, be, that would be another argument for Dimitri Kuman. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's totally untapped. I think that, you know, uh, working with uh, neuromodulation intensities, frequencies, uh, either with neurofeedback or or even with electrophysiologic measures simultaneously uh, could be very, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, yeah, with, and one thing actually that you mentioned, um, uh, uh, using connectivity, you always have to correct for the potential for lag differences uh, with the lesions. Um, like if you have certain areas, I mean, maybe not always, maybe a certain fraction of your patients, there's a uh, hemodynamic lag that might show lower correlation, but it's simply lagged. Uh, and I often thought, and, and certainly other groups might be working on this as well, as a way in itself of, of uh, specifying the lesion. Because you think that if you know you have a tiny lesion, but then the leg variation in the hemodynamics is large and, and more extensive. How do you know that that's an artifact, or whether that might actually be, you know, damaged tissue that doesn't quite show up and that's affecting the neurovascular coupling? Uh, can you make that differentiation? Uh, it's it's we we had a lot of trouble in a recent paper using Granger to understand directional interactions. Uh, I mean, what we know about the legs based on the, on the WashU cohort, which acutely we see it in about 30% of patients. And it's typically in the same vascular distribution as the lesion. You don't see it, you know, on the other side. And it's fairly well-defined in terms of vascular territory. And then at three months, the percentage goes down to 7%. And at 12 months, it's basically, there's no more. Um, now, this... Uh, so I think you can, you know, you can remove those patients with leg above a certain level. You can covariate out the legs uh, and, and correct your time series for that. Or you can look at the areas that do not show leg empirically. And I think try, and, uh, try to, and so some of these Granger, so we find that the directionality from the damaged hemisphere into the normal hemisphere is, high, is strongly decreased because of this yeah. disturbance in callosal connectivity. And, and those uh, alteration of directionality of effective connectivity are occurring in, in areas that are farther away from, from the legal area that shows the leg. So, I mean, if you look at the map of the directional effects, it's much, much larger. Yeah. It's occurring in structurally normal areas. So I think those kinds of control you can, 
But I mean, it is a problem, of course. You know, yeah. we're using an hemodynamic base measure. Yeah, and it seems right. I mean, some people even suggest, though, that that even looking at uh, at leg maps, I mean, you know, relative to global fluctuations, for instance, is might be one of the first like direct clinical applications of. Uh, uh, you know, day-to-day clinical applications of fMRIs that might be complementary to either perfusion maps or gadolinium, uh, you know, yes. perfusion-based maps or whatever. So, so right, there's more. It's either something to normalize out or or something to use. Um, that, that could I have think been. there is in the acute, you know, in the acute therapy of stroke, there is a lot. There is, I mean, <clears throat> there is a lot that can be done to use the imaging to improve. Uh, some of the clinical decisions, you know, right now we're using very crude um, diastasis based measurements based on like anatomical, the frontal lobe, and you know, there's, a, there's an aspect, it's called aspect, which is one of these indices. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and it's only cortical, it doesn't really look at the subcortical. I mean, and we know that the subcortical is so important. I mean, there are many things that can be done there now to improve that. Um, so. Another area to work on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, I, um, we're getting towards the end. Uh, uh, just the last last question, though, just is sort of an open ended question um, with regard to with regard to fMRI or even fiber track tracing or anything with your clinical work. Is there, you know, you're doing this research on groups and you're looking at relationships, but what do you think will be the future as far as implementing this on a more day-to-day basis? Uh, is it something uh, that can be used now? And if, or if so, how can it be disseminated, you know, to be used more commonly? Because it does seem that, that um, you know, neurology is actually very conservative. Uh, it seems like in general medicine, adopting new techniques to medicine is, is tricky and conservative. But what do you think, where do you think the best inroads are as far as this is concerned? I think is uh, you're right. I mean, <clears throat> we've used this tool for 20 years, and it's not like you know. I mean, in the clinic, you do use it like DTI for surgery, for neural navigation, you know, fMRI for localization of language. I mean, it's, it's but it's it's a it's a small application. Yeah. Um, I think some of the the things that my Fox says is developing, and you know, we have a little bit of an ongoing discussion about. Can you explain behavior or not using these indirect tools or not? But I think this indirect disconnection approach, it is clinically feasible. And I think it might be helpful to localize the remote effects of lesions, which could be something that could be used more clinically, uh, also for navigation or for surgery or, or other reasons. I think that would be one area of application. The other area of application, I think, is the monitoring of therapy as the patient are recovering and are being submitted to, to new therapies, like for instance, I don't know, in the case of Alzheimer, maybe we're gonna have monoclonal antibodies. Well, imaging may be used as, a, as an intermediate biomarker for seeing whether we are, uh, it's gonna be not feasible to do PET amyloid. It's gonna be really difficult to do that. Maybe, you know, fMRI could be a tool to look at, uh, you know, improvement in connectivity as people are getting treated. Yeah. But probably we need to develop, um, you know, people that are really thinking about that, right? People that are doing imaging and now they're mostly physicists, uh, bioengineers, 
if people did interested in data science, very few clinicians, and those clinicians sometimes are more interested in the pathophysiology of a disease, that's where you get the funding, than in transferring the clinical application. I think you need really people that are dedicated to the clinical transfer. Um, and so maybe we also need different kinds of funding. I'm not sure at the NIH, how the NIH would see a grant that is trying to implement fMRI leg to study stroke patients. Maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, it's not yeah. as exciting as a mechanistic based project, right? Uh, and I think that is uh, a little detrimental to the application of these very complicated tools to clinical practice. And so we, we're still going around with our little hammer and uh, we just think if you got a frontal lesion, you have language problem. If you got a right right or you got neglect. So we're still using the 1860 models to see patients. <laughs> and some of this amazing, beautiful, incredible complexity at the clinical bedside, I mean, I, I teach it. I mean, I try to teach it to my residents, but it's not, it's not something that they easy to digest, even for them. It's easy yeah. to say, well, language is here, attention is here, vision is here. It's a simpler model. Yes. And it works to some extent. Just, so, it, it, right. It works to some extent, but then it's, it's definitely, there's more to be uh, used as far as right. that's concerned. Yeah. And it's hard. You're right. I mean, fMRI is such an involved tool. Just even doing basic, you know, people are looking for biomarkers of, you know, psychiatric disorders or whatever. And let's say they even found one, you know, having a processing stream that does all this sophisticated processing uh, uh, that then presents to the clinician yeah. you know, something is, is really... Uh, then we have this replicability problem too, right? That depending on how we analyze the data, we also get different results. So harmonization is also a big issue. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I think that is, um, yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's problems, there's challenges. There's hopefully it'll keep on pushing along, and uh, yes. the NIH hopefully will will realize that the funding might be going to it, you know, should go potentially to these niches uh, uh, of, uh, of the interface between methodology and, and you know, clinical applications. I mean, obviously that's a special program or something that gives money to that area. I think that would yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have any influence on that, even if I'm from the NIH, I work in the intramural program, but uh, at least hopefully I can just talk. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, all right, is there anything else? Um, no, I want to thank you. I mean, uh, Peter has really kind of I had a deep dive into the, the whole kind of 200 more papers that I wrote. Thank you so much. He <laughs> 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 really picked up the, the, you know, the, you know, the interesting stuff to talk about. So you're a wonderful host and uh, thank you for inviting me. Well, and, thank uh, you for, thank you for coming. And I look forward to, you know, seeing you at future meetings and hopefully in person. Uh, Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll get you invited in Padova to give a lecture once the situation improves or in remote. That would be <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye, Peter. Bye. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Kevin Citek and Anastasia Brovkin.